Hi, and welcome to this special archive edition of the Computer Chronicles. I'm Stuart Chaffee. Several years ago, we did a special two-part series entitled Computers and the Pentagon, taking a look at the use of technology by the military. At that time, of course, the potential enemy was Russia and the Soviet Union. Well, times have changed, and we are facing a more amorphous enemy in what some are calling the first war of the 21st century. Surprisingly, much of the technology being used today was developed in the mid to late 1980s. So what you are going to see is very relevant to what is going on right now in the year 2001. We'll begin with some history and a background look at the use of computers and networking by the military. We'll show you flight simulator technology, the development of military robots, and the use of artificial intelligence in battlefield planning. Then an update on current military technology, with a visit to Wright-Patterson Air Force Base in Dayton, Ohio. Computers in the Pentagon, Part 1, coming up next on the Computer Chronicles. Computer Chronicles is made possible in part by PC to PC the online computer migration service from PC First, moving files, applications, and preferences from your old computer to your new one. Additional support is provided by Upside Events, presenting the Digital Lifestyle Revolution Conference, where people and technology intersect. Not long ago, Silicon Valley went into a slump with computer companies looking at red ink and layoffs, bankruptcies and auctions. But for one group of companies, the military contractors, business is very good and it's getting better. From smart missiles to the Strategic Defense Initiative or Star Wars, the computer business is booming with defense-related projects. Pentagon spending in the Valley jumped $500 million in 1984 to over $4.5 billion and increased again in 1985. Layoffs at semiconductor manufacturers are in sharp contrast with new employment at defense contractors. Up 4,000 people at Lockheed Corporation alone. Analysts estimate that anywhere from 15 to 30 percent of high-tech workers are involved with defense-related work. Critics worry that the trend away from commercial products to direct military applications will thwart the young industry's reputation for taking innovative risks. But those within the industry don't think so. The government will fund research, whereas the private sector is not interested in funding research. Uh, now, the, the military and the government uh, has particular goals for that research, so they're not just funding it for its own sake, but the uh, government, in particular the Defense Department, has a very long-term perspective on research. They don't expect to see results of your basic or applied research for 10 or perhaps even 15 to 20 years. That simply is not true in the, the uh, private sector. In a mass raid, high-speed bombers could be in on us before we could determine their tracks. And then it would be too late to act. We cannot afford to take that chance. It is to meet this threat that the Air Force has been developing SAGE. 
The Pentagon's long reach into high-tech is nothing new, as this film from the 1950s demonstrates. SAGE was a computer system built to track aerial intruders for the North American Air Defense Command. It was built at a time when military projects occupied 60 to 70 percent of the high-tech workforce. Even the earliest mainframes were designed for military purposes. The ENIAC, shown in this 1946 film clip, has a place in history as the first general-purpose electronic computer. It was also funded by the U.S. Army to calculate shell trajectories and to produce artillery firing tables for wartime use, even if it did take two days of programming for a 20-second calculation. In the United States, much of the advanced research in computer technology is paid for and directed by military agencies. The Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency, or DARPA, funds research in the outer realm of technology. DARPA is credited with developing the building blocks of modern computers, from microcircuitry to the mouse. Critics of Pentagon-funded research voice concerns about the way projects are financed and the danger of relying too heavily on military funding. Unlike the lean startup that relies on venture capital, military contractors are guaranteed a profit called cost-plus financing. And still unanswered is how the push for military computers will affect our standing in the international race for computer supremacy. One of the earliest uses of computers in the military was in the development of simulators for aircraft. While flight simulators have been around since World War II, the early models were mechanical. The computerized simulators were developed in the early 1970s. Today's simulators include extremely sophisticated graphics displays and give the instructor almost complete control over the student pilot's environment. One of the leading companies in computerized flight simulation is Singer Link. The Lynx simulators have been developed for military aircraft like the B-52 bomber, the C-130 transport, F-16 and F-111 fighters, and the Huey and Cobra helicopters. At Indiantown Gap, Pennsylvania, a Singer Lynx simulator is being used to train pilots on the Huey or UH-1 helicopter. The system uses two Honeywell 790 mainframes to process a variety of analog and digital inputs. We feed um analog information, analog input information through the A to D converter into the 790s where it's distributed by cockpits. It's shuffled to number two 790 which performs the equation of motion calculations given back to number one and outputted to the hydraulic cylinders, the cyclic, the pedals, the instruments. So control movements from uh, inputs that change with time like the cyclic, the pedals, or throttle position are analog inputs. We have digital inputs from any switches, um, switches for DIs, uh, switches for the radios, are all digital information input to the computer. The challenge for the computer, of course, is to make the simulation realistic, and that means enough computational speed to update the displays in a meaningful way. There's two type of inputs to the computer, DIs and AIs. There's two type of outputs, AOs, which vary with time, and DOs, which are either a logic on or off. The, uh, Every one of those is updated in the computer uh, 16 times a second. So we have an I.O. update rate of uh, 15.625 milliseconds or 
one, every one sixty-fourth of a second, it does one mode of the interface. Okay? So all switches, lights, instruments, and inputs are updated one, every one sixteenth of a second. While early simulators were thought of as second best to actual in-flight training and used primarily to save money, the military says the new computerized simulators are not only cheaper, but better than the real thing. Virtually everything you can do in the airplane, you can actually do in the simulator. Uh, it does represent flying in the clouds. Uh, we do not have any visual capability on this simulator. However, one of the added benefits that we have is the introduction of emergency procedures. We can actually uh, input 108 different malfunctions into the computer, and it will show up in the cockpit. These are malfunctions that uh, would normally be catastrophic in the airplane and could not be practiced. Uh, we have had at least two recorded saves up to now where individuals have practiced some of the emergency procedures in the simulator, uh, have learned them to a very high degree, and have subsequently had the same emergency in the aircraft. And they attribute their saving the aircraft and, of course, people's lives in the aircraft with their actual simulator training. The newest generation of computerized simulators feature sophisticated displays that not only give the pilot detailed visual feedback, but also simulate the use of the plane's weapons systems. One of the first applications is on the Army's Cobra attack helicopter. That system, since it's so advanced in technology, will have a visual display, and all the weapon systems on the aircraft can be operated. Uh, the benefit to this is uh, the weapon systems are so expensive to operate, and ammunition is so expensive, and the limited areas that we can actually train in are so far away uh, that they will be able to fire the weapon systems and to stay proficient in the weapon systems by using this. As I mentioned before, uh, very rarely does, does a Cobra aviator get a chance to fire the, the tow missile uh, because of the cost and because of how, how big a range area you need. Well, here in the, in the simulator, he can fire tow missiles virtually all day long. These computerized simulators are designed to train men to operate sophisticated military equipment. But in just a minute, we'll take a look at military robots that don't need any men at all. This may not look much like a tank, but someday it could evolve into one, as robots become an increasingly important part of America's military strategy. This is Terragator, an ALV, or Autonomous Land Vehicle. It's being developed here at Carnegie Mellon University in Pittsburgh. CMU's Robotics Institute is working on several aspects of robotics under a grant from DARPA, the Defense Advanced Research Projects Agency. While the work here is basic research, the military applications of an autonomous land vehicle are obvious. If you're in a, a new area where you don't know the terrain and you don't know the, what uses it has been put in, for example, there could be mines planted in a, in a field. If you, even if you send a tank, with people in it, you might in fact risk lives again. And again, an autonomous vehicle, an autonomous tank, which might conceivably you know, go do the same thing, would in fact save lives. While the Terrigator has very limited and specific functions, the scientists here are thinking about more sophisticated ALVs, futuristic robots that could actually become the soldiers of the future. There can be a droid or, uh, that is dropped and which is self-protecting. Uh, if you've been seeing the Empire si Strikes Back, you know, they, they have these little droids that are dropped and they are completely able to protect themselves. They shoot back and they're able to sense who is there and so on, but they're, you know, but they're mainly you know, able to survive and even their destruction serves a purpose. 
that uh, the fact that they're not able to communicate back shows that there's an enemy of superior intelligence that has been able to destroy a weapon of this type, which then tells you something about well, who you're dealing with and in what situation. One of the fundamental questions being studied here is how should robots move, on legs or on wheels? Right now, the betting is that wheels will win. We built a six-legged vehicle, and now we are in the process of building a, a, a robot horse with four legs and, and gallop and do various kinds of gates. And, but a large part of our research is wheeled vehicle research because we think that is still going to be 80, 90 percent of the need. Uh, just because birds fly a certain way, you don't build airplanes the same way. So just because people walk doesn't mean you have to build robots that walk. But wheels present lots of problems. To move quickly, a robot may have to spin around. Not an easy task for a robot with old-fashioned wheels. So researchers here have literally reinvented the wheel and come up with one that goes forward and sideways. Another major problem in robotics is the sensory systems. The most simple human task can seem to be an impossible one for a robot. If a system has to go open the door and go outside, go through the corridor, we don't know how to do each of those steps. Opening the door without tearing the knob off is a very major problem. And, you know, the sensors, the touch sensors, and being able to, for a robot to feel and, and think and understand and, and do the right thing are things that have never been done before and will require many manners of, you know, very sophisticated scientific research, if you will. And in the process, we'll create a, an understanding of a technology which will lead to household robots, perhaps, which will, you know, take care of the home and sweep the floors and open, answer the doorbell and get you a cup of coffee and all of those things. But the biggest problem for computer scientists here is vision. In order to open the door, you have to sense what it is there, where the knob is. And you can, if you look at that knob, you can see the specular reflections. Those reflections make it appear as though there is a, you know, a whole image of the whole room appearing on that little convex surface which confuses the, uh, the image further. And then after you decided that it has a round shape instead of an you know, oval shape, grasping it is a problem. So there's a lot of image processing and a lot of data that comes in, and then a lot of thinking and interpretation that goes on in the environment. And then doing the actual task may be relatively simple compared to all the other things. Researchers here are approaching the vision problem from every possible angle. There are one-eyed robots, two-eyed robots, and robots with one eye which scans from side to side, much like a lizard. And there are robots with multiple vision systems using video eyes, laser scanners, and sonar systems. But that creates a software problem, a problem of computer intelligence. That is the key problem in artificial intelligence, one of the key problems in artificial intelligence, namely, if you have two experts, or two sensors, or two knowledge sources, telling you completely opposing things, one of them says there's an obstacle here, another one says the road is clear, whom do you trust? You know, how can you know what you do not know? You know? People seem to somehow manage to make decisions under uncertainty, and giving a computer the same kind of plausible reasoning capabilities is something we're struggling with. We have simple solutions to it, but it, the problem is by no means solved. 
Perhaps the best example of the complexity of the vision problem for robots is what happened to Terrigator one day while trying to follow a simple path. The path had a curve at a spot where there was a tree. The robot's computer is programmed to essentially follow a path in the middle of parallel lines. So the robot tried to walk up the tree thinking its parallel lines were more like a road than the curves of the actual road. The hardest problem is the problem of deciding what it is that you're seeing, the problem of vision. You know, in the human brain, almost 30% of the human brain is dedicated to looking at a visual scene and interpreting it. That's a lot of computational power. And we still don't understand how to do it very well. And uh, we have been working at it for now 20 years. And I expect we'll work at it for 20 more years. While researchers here in Pennsylvania are trying to solve the problems of robotics, across the country, computer scientists in California are working on the military applications of artificial intelligence. In just a moment, we'll take a look at an electronic scout. So stay with us. At Advanced Decision Systems in Mountain View, California, artificial intelligence takes the form of a tactical expert system that can assess threats, plan, and advise with the help of a knowledge base. A yeah, prototype system for a pilot's assistant is uh, particularly exemplary of uh, the sorts of applications that we feel are important for the military and also why they require so much research and such a long lead time compared with commercial products. What we're talking about is a system to help uh, a pilot, say a fighter pilot, and the system that we've built has multiple expert systems in it. They operate in a distributed, near real-time environment, so each expert system is receiving information. That information flows through the system in the form of intermediate requests and uh, decisions, and eventually some of those decisions pop out to the pilot. This prototype pilot's assistant is an onboard advisor complete with synthetic speech and graphics displays. Data flows between the situation assessor monitoring the aircraft and potential threats, the pilot's interface, and the planning module, which will advise the pilot on the best course of action. In this simulation, the aircraft is following a valley along which are SAM missile sites. If the pilot requests a preview, the system's area map locates and displays newly detected missile sites along the plane's flight path. The planner charts a new route and recommends an attack. The pilot agrees to the plan, but the situation changes when an enemy helicopter is detected. The flight path is again changed, then a missile launch is detected. The plane is hit. The system health module receives sensor data and makes a damage report to the pilot. The planner advises a new battle strategy based on the remaining capabilities of the damaged aircraft. The pilot's assistant is an example of a wide range of similar expert systems for air, ground, and sea warfare, being sponsored by the DARPA Strategic Computing Program. Strategic computing will require a tremendous leap in the practical use of artificial intelligence. Uh, I believe that military applications, especially military applications of artificial intelligence software, are the most challenging applications anywhere. Uh, the real-time aspects of um, handling sensor data are a growing problem. Uh, the United States and its technology base has produced us lots of very good sensors of various types, and these sensors produce mounds 
uh, hundreds of, of gigabytes of information and there, there are no humans around that can uh, sit down and, and actually look through all that information. So we have to ha find a way to boil that information down to its essence and provide that to a field commander or to a uh, decision maker in Washington. For the battlefield commander, effective decision-making means a well-informed, fast response to the challenge of judging the quality and risks of surrounding terrain and the best path for men and equipment. AI systems can help with these challenges, sifting through masses of information selectively and quickly. ADS is working on a battlefield commander's assistant, featuring a multi-attribute display that operates like an intelligent geography database. The system can display a background and identify its natural and man-made attributes, from forests and grasslands to agriculture, cities, and towns. The operator can then add layer upon layer of selective features, rivers, roads, bridges, and other potential obstacles. But the BCA is more than electronic cartography. If the user picks a region and denotes a vehicle type, the system can determine the maximum speed through that area. And from various points on the map, the program will display line-of-sight information from those spots, painting out areas which can and cannot be seen from the vantage point, areas which could hide enemy units. Defining the best path through a battlefield is perhaps the most critical of BCA's talents. Ultimately, the reasoning powers of the system will help field commanders to plot the safest route through a battleground, based on physical obstacles, and by determining the most likely locations for an enemy attack. Well, the Pentagon may be in Washington, D.C., but out here in the middle of Ohio, the Department of Defense has one of the biggest computing centers you'll ever see. In fact, this is the major R&D lab for the U.S. Air Force, where they test and simulate new weapon systems. Wright-Patterson Air Force Base, named after the aviation pioneers and the founder of NCR, is located just a stone's throw from the airfield where Wilbur and Orville first experimented with heavier-than-air flight. While they went to Kitty Hawk, North Carolina to do their first experimental flight, they actually designed the first airplane here in Dayton. The Wright brothers started out in the bicycle business, running this little bicycle shop, which still stands in downtown Dayton. And here at the U.S. Air Force Museum, you can see the actual 1906 U.S. patent for what was then called the flying machine. In less than 100 years, the art of flying has changed quite a bit. This is the Science Visualization Lab at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. Using this high-powered, big-screen simulator, new fighter jets are tested in virtual wind tunnels. The operator uses a 3D headset and a 3D wand, each with motion sensors, to navigate the plane through a variety of flight environments, testing the stresses and structural integrity of the aircraft. The computing center here at the Air Force Base is massive. Using computers from IBM, Sun, Compaq, and SGI, they have computing power of over 600 gigaflops and data storage of more than 600 terabytes. Usually we try to compare ourselves to how many millions of of uh, Intel Pentiums we have. That's sort of a moving target, but about a year ago we, we usually advertised we had the capability of two and a half million uh, Pentium, Intel Pentium processors. Uh, that's a lot of compute power if you, if you know how powerful those things are on people's desktops now. 
The computing facility here at the Aeronautical Systems Center is used to solve a variety of Defense Department problems. Being an Army, Navy, and Air Force program, we're trying to solve problems that may uh, range from a, uh, a, a tanker carrying fuel and, and having to swerve back and forth when does the thing tip over, an aircraft that's flying through the air, the wing goes through a flutter situation, how much uh, of that flutter can take place and you can still maintain the structural integrity of that system. Here in the simulation and analysis facility, called SIMAP for short, programmers are porting older Unix-based mainframe applications to Linux-based PCs. The primary reason that we're looking at using Linux in the PC world is just because the PCs obviously are getting cheaper, faster, much, you know, much faster for the money. And in Linux in particular, Linux is essentially free. Um, so there is no, it reduces all of our operations and maintenance costs associated with that platform over the more expensive platforms. The simulation and analysis facility developed software to enable pilots to do mission rehearsals in realistic flight simulators. Using this virtual battlefield management system, pilots can become familiar with the terrain and take the time to think about the tactics they'll have to use in real time once they go out on the actual mission. The programmers here like using Linux for their simulators because of the worldwide support that's available. It's open source. Um, when there is a problem, things do seem to get solved very quickly. It's kind of a double-edged sword because nobody is in, in charge. Um, but I found that in the Linux community, if I have a problem or a question, and in fact a very detailed question, a programming question, if I post it to one of the news groups, I usually get answers within hours. And I might not just get one, I might get ten. So um, from that point of view, it's, it's nice. The other thing is, is if you do have a problem and something isn't working quite right, the author knows about the problem because they see it being raised in the news groups and, and the problem is solved quickly. While you may not think these simulations look as good as the little flight simulator program you run on your PC, there is a reason. The really good stuff is classified. What you're looking at here, first off, what you're looking at is not our most current generation of graphics. Um, we have things that will knock your socks off um, that we're not going to show you. <laughs> but what's, what is important to realize is what you see visually on the screen might be more attractive out of a $39 game. What's going on behind that thing, to doing the calculations, to giving you the real, the really modeling the aircraft very realistically, is these are far superior. They have what we call much higher resolution or higher fidelity. And, um, and of course, in these programs, these models are all designed so that aerospace engineers can change the characteristics very easily. And we have more detail than I will talk to you about on that. That's it for part one of our special series on computers and the Pentagon. We'll have the conclusion of the series next week. Thanks so much for joining us, and I hope we'll see you again here next time on the Computer Chronicles. Computer Chronicles is made possible in part by PC2PC, the online computer migration service from PC First, moving files, applications, and preferences from your old computer to your new one. Additional support is provided by Upside Events, presenting the Digital Lifestyle Revolution Conference, where people and technology intersect. To purchase a videotape copy of today's program, call toll-free 
310-7850. Please specify the show number and the topic.